Well, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to continue our study of this, what can only be caused an ama- called an amazing text of Scripture that the Lord has left for us, which gives us our theology of the church and our theology of Christian living in the strongest and most clear of all forms. We're going to be looking at verse 20 today, but we want to get the full context, so let me pick it up in verse 15. Paul writes, Therefore, be careful how you walk or how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 20. Did you feel the gravity of that? Always, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The title for today is Thankfulness, the Christian Reflex to Life. There's a medieval legend that tells of two angels that were sent to earth from heaven by the Lord to gather up different prayers from the saints. One of the angels was to gather prayer requests and the other was to gather thanksgivings. The angel responsible for the prayer request was not able to carry back to heaven all the requests he had in one load and had to make multiple trips. But the angel responsible for thanksgiving carried his back in one hand. Now, that's obviously a legend, but I don't think that the legend that it describes is too far from the truth. If we backed up just as a point of initial reflection and you were to evaluate the content of your prayers and you were to measure requests versus items that you gave thanks for, I wonder which list would be longer. The verse before us, Ephesians 5.20, is a heavy and a comprehensive verse. In fact, some commentators that I read this week believe this is the most theologically challenging, theologically challenging verse in the book of Ephesians, and others said it's the most theologically challenging in the whole Bible. Why? Well, it's pretty obvious. Always giving thanks to God for all things. Do you feel the gravity of that injunction? An amazing perspective. Paul brings up the subject of a believer's heart, a believer's disposition about life with the phrase all things, that covers life. 
And this shows us the comprehensive nature of this disposition with the phrase always. All life always should be characterized by thanksgiving. So let's begin with a, a simple question. What's the opposite? Sometimes it's, it's good to get an, a definition of something by looking at an antonym, the opposite of it. What's the opposite of thankfulness? Or what's the opposite of giving thanks? Now, you would be tempted to say being ungrateful. And you would be right. But being ungrateful is the absence of something. I think that the opposite of being thankful includes the presence of something though as well. Not being thankful is certainly the opposite of being thankful, but there is much more. The opposite of thankfulness is something we don't do. We're not giving thanks, but there's something we do do as well. If you want a clear contrast, there are two reflexes to the circumstances of our lives. We can give thanks or we can complain. Complaining is really the opposite of thanksgiving, of giving thanks. Complaining is the opposite of a thankful heart. A thankful heart opposes a complaining heart and vice versa. Think about it. Whining and complaining seem to go hand in glove with our age. We are born as natural complainers. You don't have to tell any kid to complain about a meal they don't like, right? It comes naturally. And if there were an Olympic sport for complaining, I would have a gold medal, at least a silver. We complain about sports and sports teams. We complain about where we ride in the car, especially if you're a teenager. Ever heard shotgun called on the way to the car? We complain about where we sit at a meal. We complain about food and clothes. Ever said or heard, I don't have anything to wear? We complain about the weather. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too wet. It's too dry. We complain about jobs and chores and parents and children and family and neighbors. We complain about responsibilities. We complain about having the job we have. We complain about not having the job we want. We complain about friends and we complain about the lack thereof. It should catch our attention that Paul mentions dealing with complaining as the first application of godly living to the Philippians. Listen carefully. I want you to hear the momentum of the context. In Philippians 2, he says, verse 12, So then, beloved, just as you've always obeyed it as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the command. Work out your salvation. Then he gives us some theology. For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The very first application of work out your salvation is this. Do all things without complaining or disputing. Grumbling. It's an onomatopoeic word in the Greek. It just means murmuring, complaining. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Your reputation is at stake in whether or not or how badly you complain, he says, among whom you appear as, light, as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. One of the first reflexes of a heart that is saved is it doesn't complain. 
One of the most telling statements in the word of God about the heart of an unbeliever is Romans 1.21. Listen to this. For even though the unbelievers, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Did you hear that? They didn't honor God or give thanks. Is your heart inclined to the expression of thanks to God more than complaining about the unfavorable parts of life? Truth is, yes, it's in all our hearts. Part of sanctification is shedding that. It's changing our perspective from complaining about things we don't like to thanking God for the blessings that he gave us. Hey, kids, students, I want you to pay special attention today because this is something I wish I had learned when I was five, six, seven, eight, ten years old. It would have helped me so much in living life. So kiddos, listen carefully what Paul is telling us today. I think this will help you more than you think. The younger you get this lesson, the better life's going to go for you. So in this verse, we're going to back up and look at what can only be called a theology of thanksgiving. We're given a complete theology of what it means to live a life of thanksgiving, of giving thanks. And if you want to know who we're giving thanks to, the end of the verse is to the Father, to God. Thanksgiving, we often talk about around the, the, the holiday. We're, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, but rarely do we say who we are thanking. Thanksgiving has to go to someone. And we'll find out for sure that that's God the Father. So let's break this passage down and look at five considerations for constructing a theology of Thanksgiving. Five considerations for constructing a theology of Thanksgiving. And let me tell you, if you can develop a theology of thanksgiving and apply it and live, you will live it out. You will be able to live above any unwelcome circumstance in life. It's that simple. Five considerations for constructing a theology of thanksgiving. The first is not in verse 20. It's back in verse, 20, verse 18. The origin of thanksgiving. Remember, this is the consequence it's in a list of consequence with verbs and participles that Paul adds to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The origin of thanksgiving is being filled with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. God himself is the origin of thanksgiving. In other words, the Spirit of God. Let's start with a regrettable reality. Thanksgiving and thankfulness. Thankfulness is not a natural reflex of our sinful hearts. It's not natural to be Thankful, especially when circumstances are other than we desire. Consequently, it's imperative to connect verse 20 with verse 18. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. That's a lack of self-control. Be filled or influenced, moved along, motivated, controlled by the Spirit. That's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Then the first consequences we looked at last week is we speak to one another, we encourage one another, we spiritually high-five one another by songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing melody with our hearts to the Lord. So what drives the last chapter and a half of Ephesians from verse 18 through the end of chapter 6 is the command to be filled or controlled or influenced by the Spirit of God. That's the leading 
influence or power. It's the engine that drives our lives as Christians. Dependence upon the Spirit, empowerment by the Spirit function as our engine for lives as believers. As we saw in our last study, that begins with with, uh, demonstrable and observable ways of singing, singing our hearts to the Lord, but singing demonstrably and externally with others and to others. And a walk with the Holy Spirit results in ways that you can see. It's obvious. Think about this. There is no way the Holy Spirit of the God of the universe can indwell your life without there being a radical difference. So he says the first thing that happens is you sing. Obedient Christians are singing Christians. But the next thing that Paul shows is that a faithful walk with the Holy Spirit yields a perpetually, very important word, perpetually thankful heart, thankful disposition. In fact, he begins with that perspective of being perpetually thankful. So now we come, number two, we get into the text, the time for thanksgiving. Five considerations for constructing a theology of thanksgiving. Number one, the origin. Number two, the time for thanksgiving. When, when are you thankful? When you feel like it? I wish it was that easy. No. It's in the first word of verse 20. Always. Always giving thanks. You should have have come into church this morning with that attitude. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Pantote, always. I looked up in my handy-dandy Greek dictionary, my lexicon that I have on my computer, this word. And always means, are you ready for this? Drum roll. At all times. That's what five years of Greek will get you. At all times. At all times, do what? At all times, always give thanks. Now, we can look at the end of the verse, to whom even God the Father. So we're giving thanks to God always. What does it mean to give thanks? It means awareness of something someone has done you as favor. Awareness. This is speaking of a constant, always, always aware of God and his gifts and blessings to us. It's contrasted with with what what we would do with our voice, what we would do with our life, what we would say about life. Look back at chapter five, verse four. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or, of course, jesting, which are not fitting. But instead of using your voice like that, what does he say? But rather giving off thanks. Isn't that a strange thing to say? I remember when we were studying this saying, put a place marker there because Paul's gonna come back to that. He's come back to that. Instead of using your mind and your, your voice and your, your, your language, your con- conversations in a course in an ungodly way, use your voice by giving thanks. In the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul emphasizes this same always comprehensive nature of living a life of thankfulness. 
by saying that thanksgiving should accompany, listen to this phrase, whatever you do, verse 17 of Colossians 3, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all, so whatever you do is paired with all, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father, exact same target. Whatever you do, always. Said another way, there is never a time in which you and I as believers cannot find things for which we're thankful. Never a time. It's covered by the word always. How do I do this? Only, only, only by recognizing the things for which we can be thankful. Now, Paul started the whole letter to the Ephesians in, back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have blessings for which we can be thankful for if we will stop and make record of them to our mind. In fact, we have blessings that should should alert our hearts as much as they do the angels in heaven. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As to salvation, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to these prophets, to them, that they were not serving themselves, but you, the readers, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So he's, he's saying, all the prophets longed to see when the Christ was going to come, how it was going to come about. It came about, the apostles then took that narrative and preached it to you, and you should be amazed by that. And then he has this little footnote. Things into which angels long to look. Angels cannot be thankful for so many things that you and I can be. Almost all related to redemption. Think of this. When Satan fell and drugged the demonic forces with him, there was no forgiveness offered. They were condemned forever. You and I, though we were born in condemnation, though we were born with a stiff arm in God's face, you and I today can turn from our evil ways in repentance to the Lord and he will forgive. Well, if you haven't done that, what a great passage to listen to. You can be forgiven of all your sins today by running to Christ and seeking him to forgive you. And I would beg you to do that. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave to prove that those sins were indeed forgiven by the power of his resurrection. The angels look at us and they can't, they can't be thankful for that because they didn't experience it. Thankfulness should be the ever-present disposition of a believer walking with God. You can steal a lot of things from a believer. You can steal our cars. You can steal our homes. You can steal our possessions. You can steal our health, but you should never be able to steal our thankfulness because of what we've been given, which leads us to the core of this text. Number three, the reason 
for Thanksgiving. The reason for Thanksgiving. It's almost, it's almost difficult to read. I'm, I'm going to not try to disguise it. Always, all the time, giving thanks, three words, for what? All things. Now, if you're like me, and if you're not, praise God. When I started studying this in the last couple weeks, I went into this passage thinking, well, I mean, I know it doesn't mean all things. I mean, of course. Who's, Who's thankful for sin and suffering? It doesn't mean all things. You're kind of right, but not all the way. Do you not think the Holy Spirit knows what he's saying when he inspired the scriptures? Do you think he has a speech impediment? Do you think he said, always give me thanks for all things, but I don't really mean that. What does he mean by all things? Well, Paul doubles down on it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. He says, in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So there's all things in Ephesians 5 and in everything in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. The prepositional phrase here, huper panton, for, for everything, for all things. Again, the parallel passage that we looked at in Colossians 3.17 implies the same thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. Do everything, giving thanks to God the Father. How, if you're like me, you would say, how, how can this be, Paul? You got to give me some color on this. How can I give thanks for all things? Wake up in the middle of the night, you stump your toe. Thank you, Lord. How do we do this? Well, thankfulness for all things demands theological maturity and theological perspective. And Paul gives us that. Dr. Honer writes this, Thus, thanksgiving to God should encompass all things that come into life's path. And when believers are filled by the Spirit, this will be their response in lieu of dissatisfaction and complaints. In difficult circumstances, he writes, an attitude of thanksgiving is easier to achieve with the knowledge that God is always in control. In addition, since Paul mentions blessings so frequently in this letter, no doubt he has these in mind when he enjoins believers filled by the Spirit to give thanks to God, end quote. So no, listen very carefully, listen, no, no, we are not thankful for sin. No, we are not thankful for Suffering itself. No, we're not thankful for the carnage of living in a sin-stained world. Thanksgiving for every circumstance is grounded in our soul's confidence that God is doing something in and with all of these, air quote, bad things. And this confidence is only present when we believe this truth that God is active, that he's good, that he's kind, that he's merciful, and that he's working even if we don't see it. And listen, folks, sometimes, many times, most times, you don't see it. But that doesn't make it any less true. I think we have to understand when Paul says, 
always giving thanks for all things. To say, what else did he say about all things? Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes, what's the word? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What's the word? All things. Think about this. Always giving thanks for all things. And we know that God causes all things, those things that we're to be thankful for, to work together. How can we? Why can we be thankful? Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we can only give thanks to God in everything because we know that God is at work for our good in all things. Does that make sense? We don't, I don't think Paul would be thankful, telling us to be thankful for, for anything that's sin related or that's, that's sinful or suffering or pain or injustices. But we can thank God that he uses all things for his glory and for our good. Therefore, we can give thanks. Said another way, God is at work on purpose in what we call bad things. He's at work in the purpose of these bad things, not just in response to them. Can we, can we, can we remind ourselves again, God is eternal. And never in God's existence has he ever said, uh-oh, or whoops. Jerry Bridges gives this insight. Thanksgiving in all circumstances, whether favorable or unfavorable favorable then, is another response to the trustworthiness of God. If we trust him to work in all our circumstances for our good, then we should give thanks to him in all those circumstances. Not thanksgiving for the evil considered in itself. But for the good that God will bring out of the evil through his sovereign wisdom and love, end quote. So do you see the nuanced difference there? That God is always at work in the life of a believer. And because he's always at work, even in our most undesirable circumstances, knowing that he is good, knowing that he works all things for our good, then in all things and for all things, we can trust that he is indeed for us and not against us and working for our good. It's not fatalism, it's comfort. Think about our desires can lead to expectations. Our expectations unmet can lead to discontentment with the blessings we already have and the perspective that God has given us. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15, for all things, for all things are for your sakes, all things, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. There's another all things related to the giving of thanks because we understand that God is good and everything abounds to his glory. Jeremiah Burroughs in his excellent book, there's just a few books that I would say every Christian must read. This is one of those. I was talking about this with my, my son, Mark, this week, who just read it. 
The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition or disposal in every condition. It's just that we trust God. Nicholas Ridley went to the stake with Hugh Latimer. They were bound together to be executed publicly together, burnt alive at the stake. Latimer, being in his 80s, died very quickly. Ridley died a long, slow, and agonizing death. What's interesting, though, related to Ephesians 5.20, is that when Ridley was brought to the stake to be bound, he asked for a moment, and he leaned over, he knelt down, rather, and he kissed the stake and prayed and thanked the Lord that this was his way to heaven. Was he thanking God for the miserable death he was about to experience? No, no. You see, what he, he saw through it to what God was doing. What perspective? Thankfulness sees and believes that God is good and that God is at work and God is always working in all things so we can always be thankful in all things things and for all things. That's big boy and big girl theology right there. <laughs> That's so comforting. It's so sweet. What's the reason for Thanksgiving? Everything. Because we know something about everything, right? Context for Thanksgiving. You've read Ephesians. You know this is coming. This is so sweet and wonderful. It's so consistent with Paul's theology. The context for Thanksgiving is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name. We've talked about names before. Names are critical in our culture. They're critical in the Bible. A name represents your person. This is a scary thing. It's a scary reality. Think about this. If someone has a conversation with you this afternoon... Let me say it again another way. If someone has a conversation about you this afternoon and they mention your name to someone else, think about this. The very limited mention of your name brings into that person's mind everything they know about you. That's radical. It's the same then and the same here. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means everything we know of and about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the Lord. He's the Kurios. He's the, the one we submit to. Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. His name. That's the context for giving thanks. Why would that be the context for giving thanks? Because in knowing the blessings given to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that puts everything, everything, everything into instant perspective, or it should 
To give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to give thanks with who he is and what he has done in mind. Think about it. Apart from Christ, you can't say all things work together for good. For those who are living outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, all things do not work together for your good. Another reason to run to Christ. He is our filter for interpreting and responding to life. Only in Christ can good things and bad things work together in God's conforming us to his image. Only in Christ can good things and bad things work together in God's conforming us to the image of his son. Only in Christ. That's an eternal perspective and it's important. He's doing things in us now for eternity. For our forever relationship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit in heaven. So thankfulness means developing a mindset that God is now investing in good times and bad, in favorable and unfavorable circumstances. He is investing into us the eternal weight of glory by conforming us to be like Jesus. You say, what does that look like? Well, our Lord Jesus was ridiculed. So are we. Despised, so can we be. Scorned, rejected, spat upon, blasphemed, beaten, and he was finally crucified. But in all things, he always gave thanks. MacArthur writes, Jesus deserved glory, but received humiliation. He deserved love, but received hate. He deserved honor, but received dishonor. He deserved praise, but received scorn. He deserved riches, but received poverty. He deserved holiness, but was made sin on our behalf. Yet, he never lost his thankfulness to his heavenly father because he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The context is Christ. Listen with that in mind, the context of Christ himself and especially undesirable things that would make us anxious and worried and concerned and troubled, fearful. And Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Comprehensive. Said another way, don't let anything make you anxious, but in everything, another comprehensive word, everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, here it is, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's the context. A walk with Christ changes everything. Memories of Christ change everything. Back to Burroughs again. He says, contentment is not by addition, but by subtraction. Seeking 
To add a thing will not bring contentment. This is what we do in our life. If I get this, if I have this experience, then I'll be content. He says, seeking to add a thing will not bring contentment. Instead, subtracting your desires until you are satisfied only with Christ brings contentment. Who do we give thanks to? Lastly, the recipient. That's a capital R because it's standing for God. The recipient of thanksgiving. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. And then he isolates a member of the Trinity, even the Father, especially the Father. Why give thanks to God the Father? James 1.17, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And Jesus instructed us that the Father is good and gives good gifts to his children. Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who then, when his son asks him for a loaf, gives him a stone? Now, don't, don't miss what Jesus is saying. It just kind of rolls so fast. Can you imagine your, your little child coming to you and say, I'm hungry, and you giving him a rock? No f- earthly father would ever do that. Or if he asks for a fish, he's still hungry. He will not give him a snake, will he? Those are both cruel expressions. And he's saying a heavenly, an earthly father would never do that. If you then, earthly fathers, being evil, thank you, Lord Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Father is good. He's better than our earthly fathers. Fathers, He is waiting and willing to give us. He's the source of all things good for His children and all things in our lives are for our good. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, chapter one, verse three says. Do you give thanks to the Father regularly. You know, if you're, if you're like me, you probably have a few times in your life, especially in your, in your childhood, that a lesson was given to you that it stuck. It stuck really well. Love Pop-Tarts. Man, I love Pop-Tarts. Not just any Pop-Tart. And not the off-brand, those don't count. I love Hy-Vee, but no, it's got to be Pop-Tart, and it has to be brown sugar cinnamon. (laughs) This happened first hour. I rarely get amens, and I go to brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts, and let's close in prayers. Hallelujah chorus. I love brown sugar. We, We didn't have a lot of money growing up. I know that everybody says that, but it's really true. And so every, just every now and then when, when, when mom and dad wanted to bless us as kids, the four kids, my two brothers and my sister, we would get Pop-Tarts, brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts. 
my dad had been working on us saying thank you. And uh, we were doing pretty well. And he brought home some Pop-Tarts. I, as I remember the story, I don't even think it was breakfast. I think it was just in the afternoon or maybe it was for dinner. It didn't matter. He toasted these Pop-Tarts up, gave my two brothers and sister and me these Pop-Tarts. We just started pounding these things. They were so good. About two bites in, Dad came over and grabbed all our Pop-Tarts and threw them in the trash in front of our sweet little eyes. <laughs> and you had eight horrified eyes looking at our father. We never, we always called him dad, but I think at this moment we said, Father, <laughs> what hast thou done? If we didn't say it, we thought it. We're just stunned. And dad sits down and he says, not one of you said thanks. I never forgot that. Are you a complainer or a giver of thanks? Daniel, what landed Daniel in the lion's den was crossing King Darius. Darius put out an edict that no one could pray to anyone but him. In Daniel 6.10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, this decree had gone out, he entered his house. Now his roof chamber, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem so everyone could see him. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel, if you pray, you are going to be put in the lion's den and torn to shreds. He prayed, giving thanks. What did he know? Did he know he would be delivered? I don't think so. I think he knew that God was in it for his good no matter what happened. So he gave thanks. Well, think of the great exodus from Egypt. God delivers these stubborn, stiff-necked Israelites out of slavery, 400 years of slavery, trying to make bricks with no straw, under incredible burdens, delivers them, and they complain about what's for dinner. He gives them manna. This isn't enough. He gives them quail. And if you haven't had quail, trust me, that was a delicacy he gave them. Gave them quail. This isn't enough. And then they said, we were better off in Egypt. Lack of thankfulness. Their lack of thankfulness made them what? Complain. Thanking God is the reflex of trusting God. Okay, I grew up in a small little Baptist church that was very committed to our hymnology and our, our singing. We loved singing. This is a song that I don't remember our church singing more robustly any song than this song, especially the older folks in our congregation. For some reason, they just belted this song. And I, I remember as a, as a young man thinking, why is this song so 
robustly. Well, I think I know now. Johnson Oatman, 1897, wrote this song, Count Your Blessings. You know this song? Let me read you the first course, first verse. When upon life's billows you are storm, tempest tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You remember the refrain? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. How many of you remember that song? You grew up singing that song. Ah, listen, it may be a style from a generation ago, but there is no better theology of preaching to yourself, Ephesians 5.20, than that, to count your many blessings. Jesus was walking through Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. Luke 17 says, verse 11, while Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing through Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. Why'd they stand at a distance? It was ceremonially unclean and for the health of those who you're around, you, you stayed away at a distance. From a distance, they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. His reputation had obviously gone ahead of him. He's already healed lepers. You don't think this leper colony heard about that? Jesus, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. They were healed. Now, one of them, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 lepers cleansed? But the nine, but the nine Where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? Stand up, he said. Go, your faith has made you well. Are you in the nine? Or are you with the one These men were cleansed from a disease. As believers, we've been saved from hell for all eternity. 
to be with our Savior forever. Are you one of the nine or are you one of the, with the one? I pray that we can join each other and be the ones who return and fall on our face before Jesus and give him thanks for what he's done. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. Name them. Name them. Itemize them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done.